Welcome to Manna for Breakfast, the daily Bible reading devotional which chronologically takes you through the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation in one year. Grab a cup of coffee and your Bible and join us as we journey together through God's Word. All right. Good morning, everyone. Nice to have you. Trying to new um, intro on the radio. I don't know if it comes across on on the live feed or not, but we're trying to get a little intro into the Man for Breakfast program. Just trying to get it up and running for the radio listeners. So nice to have you with us. It is 70 Seven degrees outside, but 79% humidity. Our humidity's up a bit today. I can feel it for sure. It'd be nice when it drops down a lot lower than that. Well, we are in Ezekiel. These are some interesting chapters. Quite interesting, actually, especially chapter 8 here, as we're going to look in this morning. So we'll kind of look at it probably, look at that one separate. But let's go ahead and pray and get into the Word this morning. Thank you, Father for our time together, and for blessing us as we come before you, sit at your feet, and just ask you to continue as always to teach us and guide us in Jesus' name. Chapter 8 of the book of Ezekiel. This is the vision of the abomination in Jerusalem. It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day, in the sixth month, that I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah, sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord fell on me there. Then I looked, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of a man. From his loins and downward there was an appearance of fire, and from his loins and upward the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by the lock of my head, And the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and the heavens and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, raise your eyes now towards the north. So I raised my eyes towards the north. Behold, To the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here, so that I would be far from my sanctuary? But yet you will see still greater abominations. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, Now dig through the hole. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. So I entered and looked, and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel are carved on the wall all around. Standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel, with Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand, and the fragrance 
of the cloud of incense rising. Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images. For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, Yet you will see still greater abominations, which they are committing. Verse 14. Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was towards the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. He said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Yet you will see still greater abominations than these. Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. Behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east. And they were prostrating themselves eastward towards the sun. He said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit? the abominations which they have committed here, that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly. For behold, they are putting the twig to their nose. Therefore, I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. So we've got to stop there for a sec. This is five years before the destruction of the temple and the horrid burning of Jerusalem. And God is giving Israel through Ezekiel a clear uh, demonstration of why they're going to be destroyed. Because even though Babylon had already come in and had essentially conquered them, they were under their control. They're not yielding to God. They're not praying to God and falling on their face like Hezekiah did. Oh, Lord, please help us, save us. They are going off into the hidden rooms in the temple or on the outside of the temple, the women, or all around the temple. And they are praying to these false deities, to these pagan gods, and which involved in those inner hidden rooms with all the carved images on the wall that was believed that those were pornographic, really, to be honest. And and they were all having extreme immoral types of worship to these gods, which is what these gods liked were all about. And so in their worship, they were turning away from the temple. And this is so bizarre. They turned their backs to the temple, were bowing down to these gods of the East. And every time I see on TV, the Muslims on the, on the temple Mount praying, what are they doing? They're turning their backs to where the temple was and facing the East. Not a coincidence. This is exactly what had been going on and has still been going on since the destruction of the temple. Now here, we're going to see in Ezekiel that the, the God's done with them. He said, they don't want my presence. I'm leaving here. And it's here around in Ezekiel that we see that the Holy Spirit and his glory is going to leave the temple and leave it empty before it's destroyed. Because, and essentially, once he leaves, there is no point to have that temple. It's just an empty, worthless building. And so God says he lets them wipe it out. And we don't see the temple filled again with the spirit and the the glory of God until Jesus walks in, even as a child. He is part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the glory of God. So this is a very sad time. The lesson in all this is 
in any circumstance, maintain your faith in God. They're saying, ah, God has forgotten us. We'll go and try the, the pagan gods, see if they can help us. We'll go look to them, not realizing that they were the problem. It wasn't God's fault. And you see people blame God all the time for stuff. If God was a loving God, he wouldn't allow this in my life. And why am I going through this? Yet maybe it's us. Now, obviously, there are times when we get involved in kind of things that, that are not our fault. I mean, we're, we live in a fallen world. So it's anytime you're going through a tough time, it's not because only because you're sinning or something, but you need to at least investigate why these people weren't, they were missing the whole thing. Even with all their history behind them, that God would not bless a nation that would turn their backs on him, which is what they did literally. All right, chapter nine now, the vision of slaughter. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, draw near, O executioners of the city with his destroying weapon in hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others he said, In my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye of pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men and young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. And he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. Thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. As they were striking the people, and I alone was left, I fell on my face and cried out, saying, Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great. and The land is filled with blood, and the city is full of perversion. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare, but I will bring their conduct upon their heads. Then behold, the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case reported, saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. Chapter 10, the vision of God's glory departing the temple. Here's that part. Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone, in the appearance resembling a throne, appeared above them. And he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he entered in my sight. Now the cherubim were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered and the cloud filled the inner court. 
Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. And the temple was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Moreover, the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. It came about when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from between the whirling wheels. From between the cherubim he entered and stood beside the wheel. Then the cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire which was between the cherubim took some and put it into the hands of the one clothed in linen who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. Then I looked, and behold, four wheels beside the cherubim, one wheel beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheel was like the gleam of the Tarshish stone. As for their appearance, all four of them had the same likeness as if one wheel were within another wheel." When they moved, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. But they followed in the direction which they faced without turning as they went. Their whole body, their backs, their hands, their wings, and their wheels were full of eyes all around, and the wheels belonging to all four of them. The wheels were called, in my hearing, the whirling wheels, and each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man. The third face, the face of a lion, and the fourth, the face of an eagle. Verse 15, then the cherubim rose up. They are the living beings that I saw by the river Chebar. Now, when the cherubim moved, the wheels would go beside them. Also, when the cherubim lifted up their wings, to rise from the ground, the wheels would not turn from beside them. Verse 17. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels would stand still. And when they rose, the wheels would rise with them, for the spirit of the living beings was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted up their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. These are the living beings that I saw beneath the glory of Israel by the river Chebar. So I knew they were cherubim. Each one had four faces and each one four wings. And beneath their wings was the form of human hands. As for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the river Chebar. Each one went straight ahead. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing description, detailed description of these cherubim? And of course, as interesting as all of that is, the focal point of everything is verse 18 when the glory of God is lifted up and departs the temple and it's a slow withdrawal out of the temple to leave God's presence on the earth at this point, what we like to call his manifest presence, because God can always be present in the spirit, but he had a manifested presence 
there in the temple. Remember, there was the cloud and there was the glory and there was the fire over the tabernacle and also over the temple. God said, all right, when you come in to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, I'm not going to be there to receive it, essentially. It's cutting it off. Remember, this is so pivotal and important, even to us in the New Testament sense. God had established his manifest glory in the garden with Adam and Eve. When they sinned and they fell, they were forced out of the garden. Not really told if God withdrew his presence per se there, but certainly access to him there. And that was not reestablished till thousands of years later when he came down in the tabernacle and went with man for now uh, many hundreds of years until this point. And now we're essentially 500 years before Christ. And it leaves again because of the sin of man was so great. So <laughs> this is a very, very sad event it is one to lament and mourn over for a Jew to read this and even for a Christian to say, this was that sad day where their sin got so bad that God just says, I'm pulling out. I'm closing up the embassy. You guys can sacrifice all you want. I will not forgive. I will not receive it. Your hearts are hard. But there's a silver lining in all this. There was always a remnant. And he said, mark on the foreheads those that are faithful, those ha- who, ha- who are going to the temple with the right hearts, trying to not have anything to do with this idolatry. And uh, think about this. These were the people, the normal people, not the priests per se, and all of the elders and all the people that were in this horrible, immoral uh, worship of these false idols. These people whose hearts still longed and desired to worship God, and he knew which ones they were. He knew their heart of worship, not by their outward acts, but their very heart. He says, mark those on their foreheads and don't destroy them. And in the vision, of course, it's a vision. We see everything destroyed except those faithful ones. Now, did something like that happen physically in 586 when they came and destroyed the temple and burned the city? Possibly. I don't think we're told that I know of. But it may be that those faithful ones were spared. Maybe some went to Babylon and some stayed in Jerusalem. But God did not wipe them out, per se. But you can see the typology is very powerful, very clear, that this destruction that's coming again, we see in the book of Revelation, where God tells to mark the faithful once again. So they are separated from those who take the mark of the beast. So this is a pre-type of what's going to happen in our future. First Timothy 5, honor widows. Verse 1 Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents For this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, she who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God, and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. 
But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those in his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 9, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation of good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires in disregard for Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, and keep house, and to give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Concerning elders, verse 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, also of Christ Jesus, and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them, to judgment for others. Their sins follow after them. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. So there's a plethora of things you could dive into there, each one in its own, and uh, comment on. But the overarching thing is the church was to take care of those and care about those within the church that needed help. This church in Ephesus had been around about 10 years, and they had established, well, they were doing a good job. And what Paul is just trying to do is refine things, because obviously there is murmuring going on. There were young widows who were saying, you know, I want to dedicate my whole life and my whole ability or my gifts to serving Jesus. My husband's dead. I'm freed up to serve the Lord. And he's saying in making that commitment, it's not that they were committing to be a nun. 
they just said, we're going to want to serve because nuns didn't exist then, but they, they wanted to dedicate themselves completely to the ministry. But as soon as cute looking guy came by or something, that kind of fell by the wayside and they were back pursuing the guys and probably like today, uh, not waiting on the Lord to get married, but falling into morality with them. And he's saying, look, this is not the way it should be. The younger widows should seek husbands. And of course, cultures are different and times are different. The younger women that were widows did not have the opportunities women do today to make a living, provide for themselves. They're very much dependent on their families and men. They either had to go move in with their parents again or seek a husband because they essentially didn't have any other way for income. And so you can see this got complicated, but the overall thing is like care about each other, love each other. Don't talk about each other. Honor your leaders, those in those in a positions of authority, and continue on in every kind of good works. And don't listen to all of these myths and all of these pagan kind of perverted theologies and things that you're hearing from the from the culture around you. Focus in and and press into your walk with Jesus Christ. Is is what the whole exhortation is. It's it's Paul guarding the sheep. Every little detail, he's t- telling them what to look out for, inc- to the point where he says, "Look, you know, don't don't listen to an accusation against someone in the church. I th- it would apply to anybody in the church, not just the pastor, but anyone, unless there's two or three witnesses. Boy, have we seen that? And you've seen it in your church. We've seen it in ours. Somebody will tell you, did you know that? You know, he such and such did this. Really? Wow. And oftentimes we buy it right off, but we find it's not true. It's just completely not true." And I love what um, Linda Mather, when she was there at the church, she was in a, there with us at a critical time when people were doing that. And somebody would come up and say something goofy to her about me or Melina or somebody else. And she would just go, you know, I've never seen that, never experienced that. I think you should go tell the pastor if you think that's true. But, uh, you know, we need to have two or three witnesses before this can come go forward. But first you need to go talk to the person you think is in sin. And she had a very good way of, of just being biblical and right away extinguishing those fiery darts that the enemy is always trying to throw at any church. And that happens all the time. So don't listen to the gossip. And if someone is gossiping about something, say, well, let's go talk to the person that you, that you're talking about. Let's go find out if this is true right now. Come on. (laughs) That'll shut them down. Usually Charles Spurgeon In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and he that is feeble among them at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord before them. Zechariah 12.8 One of the best methods of the Lord's defending his people is to make them strong in inward might. Men are better than walls, and faith is stronger than castles. The Lord can take the feeblest among us and make him like David, the champion of Israel. Lord, do this with me. Infuse thy power into me and fill me with sacred courage that I may face the giant with sling and stone, confident in God. The Lord, make my greatest champion far mightier than they are. David can be as God, as the angel of Jehovah. This would be a marvelous development, but it is possible, or 
it would not be spoken of. O Lord, work thus with the best of our leaders. Show us what thou art able to do, namely, to raise thy faithful servants to a height of grace and holiness, which shall be clearly supernatural. Lord, dwell in thy saints, and they shall be as God. Put thy might in them, and they shall be as the living creatures who dwell in the presence of Jehovah. Fulfill this promise to thine entire church in this our day. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's pray. Father, that is a devotional prayer that I certainly pray for myself. God, I'm, I'm weak and feeble, and without you, I can do nothing. And God, we pray that you would use us in those times, in those distressing situations where the giants do come against us, and they want to come against you, and they want to insult, they want to try and uh, embarrass us and, and say things against you, God. And uh, I, I, they want to taunt you as the holy and living God. And, and my prayer, God, is that you would well up within us with strength, not per se to slay them with stones, but to slay them perhaps with truth and love. As Jesus was so apt to do, that he could simply speak your truth and he could do it in a way where he was not losing his temper, but simply bringing them to condemnation by their own words. So, God, we pray for that, that you would use us in those regards, because ultimately we'd like to see the people that bring these accusations and are taunting you to be broken and fall on their face and receive you. Because I remember how I was, and I remember, God, how I was so hard-hearted against Christians and how you so graciously and mercifully broke me and humbled me. And I thank you, God, for that. And I think, God, there's so many people out there that want your embrace, but they've been hurt. Something in their past has hurt them. And so like a small child, they're mad. And what they really want is for someone to just come and hold them and let them break. So, God, we pray for that. We pray that you would work through us for that. People we know in our families, people we know that are around us, uh, those that have been ministered to through Amelia and Ruby as they went and shared with people in the mall. God, we just pray you, you would touch them through those words and the tracks and continue to bring people to their knees to love you and receive your forgiveness. Thank you for the healings that you are doing. God, continue with Hank and his wife, thank you for what you're doing in Maria Elena, which you've already done through Jose Luis, and now Dean and his daughters. Continue to heal them, God. Bring complete healing to them. Thank you for the way you are bringing this war in Gaza to a conclusion, God. It's moving swiftly, and we pray that they would be able to find more captives alive and deliver them, God. And just, God, we pray that your spirit is there, empowering those in the IDF and and the innocent, God, that you would deliver the innocent in the midst of all this. Because we know it is the principalities and powers that have always waged war against you, as we just read about in Ezekiel, still doing it today. So we pray for deliverance. We thank you for this day, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So there we go. We will uh, put out a audio podcast for tomorrow is Sunday. So we won't be doing this live, but you can catch the audio podcast. Probably get um, probably be 
published in the morning or late tonight. I'm not sure, but it is edited, so check that out. And mm, won't be on the radio, but it will be on all the podcast formats. So check it out. If not, um, see you tomorrow, 9 o'clock here local time. Looking forward to seeing you in Genesis. It's going to be good. So bring someone that needs to hear about Jesus and keep looking up. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Thank you.